Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to learn wonderful insights from this portion of your word. We thank you for the power of the preached word of God through foolishness of men like myself. We pray that we might have eyes to see Christ and that we might honor him and humbly repent and believe upon him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this text of scripture, we sort of ask the question, given the background of knowing that this is the this is a message that's now being given far away from Jerusalem, among a people who probably rarely ever get there, and that the gospel is moving outward, as it says in the whole theme of the book, right? It was to go to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, right? It was to move outward. Well, here it is moving outward. And the question comes, how are the people of God to respond to all the spiritual darkness in the world? Among so many people who are unsaved, so many people who do not share the same passion and concern for the glory of Christ, do they respond with, are we to respond with indignation, looking down our noses at other people, saying, ugh, these people, can you believe they do this or that? Should we, there, or should we respond with indifference? Eh, it is what it is. Are we to respond with isolation, withdrawing from them into a holy huddle. I put at the top of your notes a very helpful quote by Philip Bethencourt, who I think has a very good response that I hope will grip your heart as it has mine. He says, as the culture around us shifts away from the gospel, our response should not be outrage, but outreach. Not outrage, but outreach. And that's what the early church is doing here. The early church knows, knew at that time that the days they were living in were evil. It was very obvious to them, as it's obvious to us today. But they nonetheless, as the people of God, celebrated the gospel weekly. They would come together into their own times of worship on the Lord's Day. And they would follow the Holy Spirit as they sought the Lord together week after week, as they devoted themselves to prayer and seeking God and saying, Lord, what would you have us do? What is it that we are to be doing in this world? Notice that the Holy Spirit made very evident to them they are to send out gospel workers. They themselves were sent ones, and they were also to send out people who would go far beyond where they lived and who would take the gospel far and wide. And now we're finding that the gospel is moving beyond the island of Cyprus it is now moving northward into the part of the Roman Empire known as Pisidia. And there the church that was located initially at Syrian Antioch, a very diverse city, a city that's a huge population center. We said it was one of the third largest in the Roman Empire. They had sent out now Paul and Barnabas and John Mark to bring the word of God and the gospel to not only Jewish people, but also pagans. And then we find them now Having gone westward into Cyprus, they finished the island, now they're moving northward, and they're moved now into a, uh, an area, having seen an amazing example of the power of the gospel while on Cyprus, to bring to faith a guy who was the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus. Earlier we read that in chapter 13. Some scholars have read this, and they've 
begun to put the pieces together and they've wondered out loud, I wonder if this connections that this Sergius Paulus guy had in the political realm and in his relatives and different people he knew, that it's because of the connections with him. Now that he's come a believer, he's saying, be sure to go to, he probably sent them north to the area that it mentions here in chapter 13, to um, Pisidian Antioch. And it's with these connections that they're now arrived there, 100 miles north. They've had to go through the dangerous mountains. Perhaps that's why John Mark said, I'm not going over there. I know there are robbers that live in these caves. I can't handle this danger. I'm sorry, I'm out of here. We don't know why he turned away. But, the, but they nonetheless invested with Barnabas and with Paul. They, they did what seemed very natural to them is they first started with people who were like them. People that they understood, people that they could relate to. And so what did they do? They gathered with Jewish people, their fellow Jews, on a Sabbath, in a synagogue. They were familiar with all these things. And by the way, a typical synagogue service in that time would have included the, uh, things like this. The, the reciting of the Shema, the Lord our God is one. Then they would have a time of prayers offered, and then they have two lessons, one from the Pentateuch, they'd read from the Pentateuch, and then they'd read from the prophets, uh, followed by a sermon, followed by a blessing at the end. It's not clear what the readings were that day. Perhaps the readings were from Deuteronomy 1 and Isaiah 1, we don't know, but since Paul obviously was very well taught in the studies of the Jewish faith, he was a a rabbi himself, a former Pharisee, it is, uh, and, and so was, uh, and by the way, uh, uh, Barnabas was also uh, someone with a background as a priest. So he, it's amazing how much knowledge they had. So they were given an opportunity to make a comment on what was just read in the scriptures. So using the Hebrew scriptures, Paul stands up and he gives three reasons, three arguments of why his unsaved religious listeners, his fellow Jews, should respond to the sovereign grace of God and believe on Jesus as the true Messiah, the one who was sent to save his people from their sins. Now I want to make our way through this very quickly through uh, this sermon. I'm going to fly through this. I could easily uh, have taken much longer on this, but we're going to just cover the larger uh, outlines of his sermon. And then I'd like to make three or four uh, practical uh, suggestions at the end. So follow along here. First of all, Paul begins with an Old Testament witness to God's sovereign grace in the fact that God promised, us, promised them a Savior. He promised them a Savior. I've often wondered, how do you witness to people who are religious? How do you witness to people who pride themselves on their spiritual performance record? They can tell you what they have done. They can tell you how they have done this and this and this and this. And they have not done this and this and this and this. How do you evangelize the people who celebrate various religious traditions that they've been following for years and years and years? They don't see a need for any kind of serious commitment to Jesus Christ. They just hold on to their tradition. Well, Paul began by rehearsing the history of the Jewish people. And he began by reviewing the long list of the ways in which God has shown to those people sovereign grace. Now, when I use the term sovereign grace, I'm using it with the understanding that God was not under any obligation to show these people grace. 
He chose to do it because he just chose to do it. But notice why he gives many different examples. It starts with verse 17, and he mentions the fact that God called the fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He made to them exclusive promises to these people. Why these people? Were they greater than anybody else? No. He just chose to. Verse 17, he enabled the children of Israel to increase. Even though they were in bondage in Egypt, they began to multiply. They became great in their sheer numbers of people. In verse 17, then God also delivered them from the bondage as he brought them out of Egypt with his mighty power. Verse 18, he patiently dealt with them during these 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and all the complaining and all of the, 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 the uh, re returning of their hearts toward the, uh, loyalty to uh, Baal and to idolatry. And nonetheless, he patiently dealt with them. Verse 19, he granted these Israelites victories over their foes. What's he talking about? When they went into the promised land, right? They had victory after victory of the various nations who were there occupying the land that he was given to his people. And then he provided to them an unimaginable inheritance. They received a land, not just any kind of land, but a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Now, I've heard that term for many years, flowing with milk and honey. I kept thinking, who wants milk going down the the curb of the road, you know, or flowing. Where's, where's milk flowing? What does that mean? And why is honey such a big deal? I think what he's saying there, he said the land is a fertile land. That is, you could raise cattle there. You could have your livestock, and they'll be able to survive. Therefore, you'll have milk. You'll also be able to have lots of plants where there's insects who are doing their work, the honeybees. And so there's a, it, it'll grow crops. He's saying that there's going to be a fertile, fruitful land that would sustain their agrarian, their gregarian, um, sorry, their, their farming uh, needs as a people. Verse 20, time after time, even though they were in the promised land, they fell into distress, they fell into bondage. But God graciously each time would raise up a judge to deliver his people again and again. That's the book of Judges. And even though God was their real king, ruling over his people. They wanted their own human king. And oh, they kept begging for a king. God, give us a king. We want to be like other nations of the world. Not realizing that's not always the best thing in the world. But he did give them a king, Saul. The first one did not rule very righteously. But God then was gracious and gave them another king, David, a king who was a man after God's own heart. Verse 22. And that king had some really amazing, respectful attributes. He wasn't perfect, but boy, he was a great king. And they loved him so much, they said, oh, I wish we could have a king like him forever and ever. I wish we could have a king who would be much even better than him. And God said, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to give you a righteous ruler someday who will come from the lineage of King David, and he will reign forever and ever. Now let's back away from this list and ask ourselves, did you notice in this long list of events that he's summarizing now, the life of the nation of Israel, do you see in there the common theme running through it all is God's sovereign grace shown to this people who were unfaithful, undeserving, and yet they were treated so wonderfully. The more you think about these people, what they were involved in, the more you think about their moral and spiritual failings of the Israelites, the more you appreciate this undeserved favor that God repeatedly 
showed them. Now hold your finger, if you will, in Acts 13. Go back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I think it's so important to have this verse inform this text because the more I read this sermon, the more I was impressed with how undeserving all of these gracious ways that God has shown to these people. Look what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. This is from one of three sermons Moses preaches before they go into the promised land, just to get your ideas of where they are in their history. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. God says, the Lord your God, Moses preaches, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What privilege that they enjoy. Now notice this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You were not a very impressive nation. He chose you, notice, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. What's he saying there? He's saying the way that God treated the people of Israel and that he treated all their ancestors down through the years was based on merely his sovereign grace. It was not because they deserved it. It's easy to forget that. It's very easy, particularly if you are a person who sees yourself as self-righteous, you view yourself as deserving God's favor because you look at all that you've done and you, you're so proud of and that things you've tried to avoid through the years. And that's why Paul is going through this history. He's reminding them, listen, there's a creator who's made everything. And that God, because He's the Creator who made everything, He owns everything. And the world is His. He can do with it what He wants to do with it. It's His world. He's in charge of His world. And He made us human beings to be His representatives in this world and to live under His rule. But all of us, including all of Israel, but us as, as well, we have defied His authority again and again. We've run things our way. We have committed cosmic treason. And all of us, like the nation of Israel, we have messed up God's world. And despite our rebellion, God extends common grace to every single person on this world. He gives food. He gives sunlight to all. He gives rain. None of us deserves to go on living. All of us have not received from God what we deserve. Instead, God has shown us His self-initiated, uncoerced, free favor. God sovereignly chose to be gracious to Israel. How? By granting them the noble and admirable king in the person of David. And in keeping with His grace, He promised to them a greater king, a Messiah, an anointed one coming through the lineage of David, a Messiah who would rescue his people, a redeemer king who would govern over his defiant subjects in a righteous and wonderful way. 
And as we think about Israel's history, let me just pause for a moment and ask you, have you thought about what your history entails? Look back on your life. Have you seen God show you mercies, acts of grace, treated you in ways that are not in keeping with what you deserve? Again and again? Boy, I sure can. Are you able to see God's grace in your story? Have you taken time to ponder it, to think about over and over again, looking back, instead of just looking at all the things that didn't make sense, all the things that were difficult as the children of Israel, what? They're in Egypt all those years. They have all these nations that are difficult and they're thorn in their side. All the different problems they had. Yes, but in the background of it all is what? Grace. Grace is showing to them all over throughout their history. Can you see the grace of God shown to you? Do you see the clear outlines of his undeserved favor? I thought of a, an example from years ago. I was going back to seminary with my wife. We're driving in a 1969, yes, I said a 1969 Plymouth Valiant slant six engine, and it was so old at the time we were driving it in the 80s that the speedometer no longer worked. The, the speedometer that went like this, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the old style of speedometer. And so we're driving along, I'm driving along, my wife's not driving, I'm driving along, we're in Ohio, I have no idea how fast I'm going, that's literally true, and next thing I know I see lights flashing behind me. I pull over and I'm thinking, oh brother, I can't plead anything, I don't know how fast I was going. So the officer uh, pulled up behind me, wrote down the information, gave him all my stuff and uh, license and whatever registration. And after a while, and I'm praying, thinking, I don't have any money to pay a fine. We're headed back to school. I got all these debts, things piling up. We got an old car that's, I can't afford to fix the, uh, the speedometer. And he says, all right, sir. He says, uh, tell you what I'm going to do for you. He says, uh, you are from out of state. We here in Ohio, we have uh, speed limits. And the speed limit is, I think he said 55 or whatever it was. He says, I'm going to warn you today. So here's your warning. Let's be careful next time. I said, officer, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you again. He showed me grace. I'll never forget it. It's not always that way. What did I deserve? I deserved to have a ticket and to pay a fine, to pay a penalty. But God has done that again and again and again to you and to me, and I hope we have eyes to see it in our history. The second thing I want us to move in is Paul talks about this his sermon, his second point is he gives a New Testament gospel witness. A New Testament gospel witness. Now this is before the New Testament was written, but I want you to see that much of what he's going to cite now is recorded for us in the New Testament. He's going to give a witness to God's sovereign grace in providing a Savior. Not just promising one, but providing one. At this point, Paul then constructs his sermon with a very compelling and strong argument that Jesus Christ, notice verse 23, the end of verse 23, Jesus is the righteous king. Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah promised to David. As I said, as I read through the text, that was a point at which his audience was with him until he read that name. Because at that point, many of these people are just, they don't get it. They're not with him on this thing about Jesus. They're still 
thinking that they're following the law and that Jesus, because of many reasons, they've rejected him. Notice he says here, he goes on to cite that Jesus is a descendant of David. Matthew 1 tells us that's true. Luke chapter 1, those, those long list of ancestries, you're like, oh, skip over this genealogy, boring. No, he's trying to show that Jesus goes back to the lineage of David. He's royalty in his family tree. Jesus also uniquely was introduced to the world by the last Old Testament prophet, John the baptizer. And John was the one that said, here is the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Here's the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. Verse, verse 25. And John says, look, I don't even deserve to undo his sandals. He is so great and I am so low. Now at this point, Paul is anticipating, listen, there's a strong objection here. He knows it in his audience because he used to be that person. <laughs> he used to make these objections. The objection is what? Jesus can't possibly be the true Messiah sent from God. Why? Because look at all the leaders of Israel. They rejected him. They condemned him to death on the cross along with the Romans. Well, clearly that is a wide concern shared by many people at that time. How can this Messiah be put to death on a Roman cross? It doesn't make sense. Paul, however, was ready with the Scriptures. He pointed out that everything that took place with regard to the different events that occurred, the different sayings from the cross, from the ways in which Jesus was treated on the cross, all of these things are fulfilling Scriptures regarding the Messiah. Jesus died on that cross as a suffering Messiah, which is what the Hebrew Scriptures predicted. They were scratching their heads, they didn't get it, but if you look in your sermon notes, I've given you a long list. You don't have to take time now. It's quite small. It's a lot of crammed on there. These are just few, some of those examples that, from Scripture that were fulfilled in Jesus' last days on earth and on his death on the cross. But he says, if, if that's not enough, the most compelling proof that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah King was what? His resurrection from the dead. And many people have been crucified over the years. They certainly had seen many people during their lifetime because that's what the Romans did with people who deserved capital punishment. Many people also, by that time, had also claimed to be sent from God. There have been many wannabe messiahs at the time in which Paul was, was preaching. But Jesus was clearly revealed to be the true Messiah, the promised son of David, the Savior King to rescue rebels from the penalty of their sin. He was the true one. Why? Because he alone was raised from the dead by God. So, Pil so Paul does what? He piles on not one, but two and three proof texts from the Hebrew Scriptures speaking of the fact that the true Messiah cannot be a person who remains in his grave. He cannot be a person whose body has rotted, whose body has gone through the process of, of, uh, of decay. Now, if you know anything about death, it doesn't take long for death to take its logical steps and turn into a 
horrible aroma of death, the stench of death. Now, for many of us, it means what? It means when we pass by a dead animal on the road, you just get this smell of death. It is disgusting, is it not? Now, in that day, they didn't embalm people, not the Israelites. They would do what? They would try to overcome the stench of death that, that represented decay by putting perfumes and things that were aromatic on top of the dead body. And clearly, everyone, if you know the story of Jesus' own burial, he was what? They put spices and, and these things on his dead body, which was the customary way in which they would uh, put someone into a tomb. In John 11, we read about Lazarus has been a tomb for four days. Even with the perfume, there's still a stench of death coming out of that grave. And what does he say here in Scripture? What he's saying is that the Messiah, according to the teaching of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the true Messiah would not undergo decay. David, his grave was still there. They knew where it was in Jerusalem. But the true Messiah is not a person who will be left in a grave. He is raised from the dead. And Romans 1 tells us that Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God. How? By the resurrection of the dead. Now, I think at this point, Paul could have easily stopped this sermon and said, listen, let me tell you my story. And maybe he did, but it's not recorded here by Luke. Fourteen years earlier, he was confronted on his way to Damascus by the risen, resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, on his way there to Damascus. But Paul knew that his audience was far more interested and far more compelled by the testimony of the Scriptures. They had a high view of the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, Jesus, he says, was not a wannabe Messiah. He was not a person who was just claiming to be a Messiah. His tomb was empty as a perpetual signpost to all the skeptics, all the deniers, all of the dismissers who would say, eh, Jesus is not truly the Messiah. No, he is. Why? Because he was a holy, sinless, eternal Son of God, the Savior of sinners. See, the gospel that Paul is insisting on here involves the sovereign grace of God in sending his one and only Son who lived a perfect and righteous life. And yet, even though he lived that perfect life, he deserved to be treated with glory and honor and reverence. But what happened to that Messiah? He was despised. He was rejected. He was put to death. For our sins, according to the Scriptures, that was God's plan. He was buried, He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And so how can we fully describe the glories of God's sovereign grace shown to us in such an amazing gospel of one who died in the place of sinners like you and me? And I think of Paul and how he tried to summarize his his uh, sense of amazement at the grace shown to him in the gospel in Ephesians chapter 1. If you got your Bible, maybe you want to look over there. Ephesians chapter 1, which Paul says beginning in verse 5. is a long passage here. I'm just going to read a few verses. It says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of of the glory of what? Of His grace. He took these steps to save 
helpless sinners like you and me, undeserving sinners like you and me, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in Jesus Christ the Beloved. And in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He didn't just pour out a drop or two, or maybe pour out freely like this. He lavished it on us in the gospel. He lavished it on us. Does that cause your heart to resonate? To be filled with a sense of wonder and amazement? To be thinking that there's nothing of what of which you have to boast about except Jesus Christ and the glory of His grace? Shown in the gospel. That's what Paul's striving for, I'm convinced here. Because he's all pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me and my keeping of the law and being a good person. It has nothing to do with that. Very quickly, point number three. Paul also gives then a New Testament apostolic witness to God's sovereign grace in partaking of the Savior. You see, Paul does not end the sermon without giving a strong call to respond. He's calling his listeners to respond to Jesus' gracious gift. Notice the basis of our salvation is mentioned there in verse 39. <clears throat> he says very clearly in Acts 13, 39, It is through Jesus everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. He says the basis of our salvation is not relying on our performance, but it's in trusting Jesus alone. It's by faith, faith alone. Because Jesus performed what we were incapable of doing on our own. Notice the benefit that's promised. He says, full forgiveness of sin. Being declared right with God. Being justified, verse 38. And some here, of course, at this point in the sermon, perhaps are assuming as they did that day, in Pente as they did in Antioch there in Pisidia, ah, come on, Paul, that, that's too much, that's too generous an offer. What's the catch? There's nobody that's that generous. There's nobody that's going to give you that kind of gift freely. What's the, what's, what's the bottom line here? What's the small print? There are some people who probably respond to the sermon, they say, there's no way I could take advantage of such a gracious provision. My record of sin is way too long. Some people say, for years I've secretly rebelled against King Jesus. Way too many times. Notice the breadth of the promise. The promise there, verse 39, is not to just some who are better than others, but he says it's for everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. My friend, don't miss this. Many people are assumed that God's grace in Christ is not available to them because they fail to measure up. They say to themselves, well, I fail to tell the truth. I have failed to be a person of integrity in my life. I have a person who has failed to do what I know I should be doing in my life. I have failed because I've lived a lie, because I've thought of things in my mind I would never want anyone to know about. And I'm too embarrassed to confess many of the sins I've committed in my life and many areas in which I know I've failed to do the things I should have been doing in my life. My friend, would you look at the promise of grace is to everyone who believes. Everyone. 
That includes you, my friend, if you believe. Look at 40 and 41 of this sermon, verses 40 and 41. It ends with this thought of beware. Paul knows that everyone in this audience, in every audience, there's always one skeptic. There's always somebody with their arms crossed saying, yeah, right. I don't think I'm ready to buy into this thing just yet. I want to think this thing through. Sounds too good to be true, whatever it is. They make excuses. Or they procrastinate, say, well, I'll get to it one day in my life. Or they delay in this decision to turn away from their sins, to turn in faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and confess Him as Lord. So Paul uses Scripture again in Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, and he reminds him that the consequences of unbelief, of refusing and rejecting Jesus and not believing upon Him, that will bring serious consequences. And he reminds them essentially of saying, listen, in the days of Habakkuk the prophet, he warned them to turn and repent of their sins and turn in faith to God, and they refused. And what happened? Here comes King Babylon, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, coming in there, and man, did he wreak havoc in their world. You see, if we refuse to believe, if you will continue, you will continue to carry the heavy, heavy burden of facing the reality that one day you will have to stand before God and give an account of him over everything you've done in breaking of his laws to the all-knowing, almighty judge of the earth. If you want to carry that burden around, he says, you better beware. It's not going to be a pleasant day when you stand before almighty God. It's so much better to what? Take heed to the gospel, he says. Take heed to the good news. Take heed to the wondrous, marvelous, amazing grace that can be freely lavished upon you through Jesus Christ. Paul himself, that was his testimony, wasn't it? Isn't it amazing that Paul's the one giving this sermon? He was the one who, what, for years despised Jesus. Would never even consider pondering his grace and and humbling himself. But boy, now he's understanding he's got it. And God has shown him that grace. And he is now trying to encourage others to follow it as well. Let me finish with a couple of practical applications here. These are just added thoughts that came to my mind. I'm sorry there's no room for this. It came in just the last yesterday as I was thinking about this text. A couple of practical applications. Number one, when it comes to sharing our faith, know your audience. Know your audience. He was speaking on a Sabbath to Jews in a synagogue. What's he doing? He's quoting Hebrew scriptures right and left. Know your audience. Know the way they think. Know what they value. Know what they believe in terms of about themselves and and how they're going to be right with God. He knew his audience like the back of his hand because he used to live that life. That wasn't hard for him, but for us, we have to ask questions. We have to not make assumptions and try to understand who is the person we're trying to share our faith with. Number two, share the Scriptures. You can tell a lot of things to people about all sorts of good news, but at some point, they have to deal with what the Scriptures say, not just what you say. So it's important to have a Scripture when you're sharing your faith. Get people to open up the Bible and read the verse themselves. When Jesus makes certain promises, have them read those promises. Share the Scriptures. Why? The Scriptures alone are able to give a person the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that's in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 Thirdly, very quickly, not only do we know our, should know our audience, share the Scriptures, but thirdly, we are to make Jesus central. Don't get caught up in politics. Don't get caught up in all the objections they're going to throw at you. Don't get, get caught up in all the different uh, you know, church history issues, whatever they want to bring up. 
make Jesus central. Make Jesus the point of your conversation with them. Just say, Jesus is the one that talks about hell. I don't. I'm not, I'm not the one making a big deal over it. It's Jesus that makes this promise. It's Jesus that made this exclusive statement about believing in him and him alone. Make Jesus central. And lastly, call them to respond. Give them an opportunity to respond. Call them to faith. Call them to believe in Christ. Call them to come and receive eternal life. Let's pray. Father, as we read this sermon, it just thrills us to see the power of the gospel, to realize the person preaching these words was none other than the person who at one time was trying to destroy the one of whom he's speaking. Thank you for the amazing grace of God shown in the lives of so many of us, Lord, who at one time our lives were a mess. and We were headed in a direction that was only toward eternal damnation. And we thank you, Lord, that you've changed us, you've washed us, you have cleansed us, you've put us in a new heart in us, given us a new identity through the gospel. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here today who might see themselves as, as a person who is trying hard, being religious, being respectable in their life, but Lord, they've never been overwhelmed by your sovereign grace. They've never begun aware of how undeserving they are till today. I pray that you would give them, Lord, a heart that longs to love Christ, to believe Christ and trust in him alone and to receive his forgiveness and his new life and to repent from their sins and to know what it is to have sure and eternal life in Christ. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know this wonderful truth of eternal life in Christ, I pray that you would give us boldness, give us hearts of compassion, help us, Lord, as we seek to share the gospel with others, to do so in a way that would honor you and keep Christ central in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.